following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Thank you. Lord, thank you for the reminder through Brother Kempis your adoptive heart, Lord, that you have adopted us because of your great love for us, a love that we sang about that, Lord, is deep, wide, vast, and immeasurable. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that you are holy, that you are set apart, that you are who you are, and thank you that you have revealed yourself to us because of your grace and your kindness. Lord, we do want to pray for a child evangelism fellowship and just ask that you would use that ministry to proclaim the, the news, the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, and that you would use Claudia and the others who are serving alongside her, Lord, to, to reach many here in Los Angeles. Pray, too, for Tom Larder, Lord, and just ask that you would strengthen him, Lord. I know he's maybe in his last hours, last days, Lord. Just encourage Norma, Lord, and... And bless them. Thank you for their faithfulness. And I too echo Kempis's prayer just for Kathy, that you would please, oh Lord, bring her home, Lord, quickly. And I know she just desires to see you, not to suffer anymore. Father, bless our time now as we look to your word. And Lord, use it, God, to move us nearer to our Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Well, things are not always what they seem. I take, for example, this flower. Um, you see anything uh, unusual on it, something that maybe shouldn't be there. Sorry if you're squeamish about bugs. I, I didn't give you a, a warning on that. Yeah, this flower has an uninvited guest, doesn't it? Uh, that little critter there is known as uh, an Australian crab spider. It was named that, I think, because of its long four legs that are these strong uh, talon-like uh, legs and these guys have uh, they have an appetite for honeybees and they have several methods that they use in order to capture honeybees one method is simply just hiding within the flower uh, second method like this guy here is a camouflage where the the color of their uh, bodies uh, blends in and so they are not seen there's actually a third method that that is used it's a very interesting one where uh, their bodies emit this kind of uv light that is or reflects a uv light that actually serves as a uh, an attraction to the honeybee that it, it distinguishes the the spider but it attracts the honeybee to it um, for reasons i have no idea but it does and as a result, now close your eyes if you're squeamish. As a result, the honeybee suffers this exact fate. It finds itself in the claws of this uh, crab spider and locks in on the bee and then he uh, hits it with some very paralyzing venom. High price to pay for being curious, isn't it? Right? This, this bee who was just humming along from flower to flower out on a pleasant day searching for pollen in the bright sunshine ends up with this tragic fate, all because he was curious or unaware. And the tactics of the Australian crab spider really serve as, I think, a perfect illustration for what we're going to see from the prophet Amos this morning and what he has to say about the danger of sin. For sin is a lot like that alluring spider on the flower. 
It draws uh, us in for a closer look, often bringing disastrous results. It's like that man in Proverbs 7, the the uh, naive man, the, the man who was a simpleton, who was lured in by the seductions of the adulteress. And it says in verse 23 there that he did not know that it would end up costing his life. J.C. Ryle said this in regards to sin. We're too apt to forget that temptation to sin will rarely present itself to us in its true colors, saying, I'm your deadly enemy and I want to ruin you forever in hell. And you know, in the modern church's quest for uh, you know, upbeat messages that focus on blessing and comfort and, and happy thoughts, and this topic of sin gets very little press these days. And it's not that speaking on these other topics are wrong or or bad at all, but it seems like many act as if the war is over, that Jesus has conquered sin on the cross. We don't have to worry about it anymore. And and so many flutter from flower to flower to flower, unaware of the danger that lurks from within their very hearts. Jesus did die on a cross and he did die on a cross so that any who would repent from their sin and turn to him in faith would be forgiven and would be saved and and that the enslaving power of that sin would be released. But there is still in this life the presence of sin, even as a believer. We still battle sinful desires, don't we? Don't we all? Peter says that our fleshly lusts wage war against our soul. James says that selfish desires war against us. Describe sin as, a, as an enemy that is in battle, that is battling our very souls. We've got to understand it tactic, it, its tactics. We need to know how it works and, and what it does because it is so, so dangerous. That's why we need to talk about sin and the, the danger of sin. And that's where Amos goes and what we'll see from him this morning in Amos chapter 4, where he will show us four characteristics of sin to motivate us to repentance. And so please stand as I read from Amos in chapter 4. And this message in Amos 4 is one of a series of three messages. He says in the very beginning in verse 1, hear this word. That's the same way that he introduces chapter 3 and chapter 5. And I think these are three distinct messages that Amos delivers to the people of Israel. Well, in this second message of the three, Amos says this. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountains of Samaria who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring now that we may drink. The Lord has sworn by His holiness. Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. You will go out through breaches in the walls, each one straight before her, and you will be cast to Harmon, declares the Lord. Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering also from that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Make them known, for so you love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord God. But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you. While there were still three months until harvest, then I would send rain on one city, and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on, while the part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but you would not, but, but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees. 
Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses. I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I shall do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts, he who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. Thank you. May be seated. Well, here in this chapter, Amos gives us a depiction of four characteristics of sin. The first characteristic that we see in verses 1 through 3 is that sin is self-debauched, that is self-indulgent. And the second trait we see in verses 4 to 5 is that sin is self-deceiving. And then in verses 6 through 11, we see that sin is self-determined. And finally, in verses 12 through 13, that sin is self-destructive. And it's my prayer as we look through these various characteristics of sin that the Holy Spirit would move in us to be more vigilant, to root it out in our lives. So let's begin. Let's look at verses 1 to 3 where it talks about where we see an example of sin being self-debauched. Amos begins chapter 4 again, just as he does 3 and 5 with the phrase, hear this word. And, and these may have been messages delivered at different times, and then he compiled them together consecutively here in his book. But Amos begins this message in verse 4 rather abruptly. After saying, hear this word, he then says, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria. Just who is he talking to here? Obviously not literal cows, right? Though my grandfather actually talked to cattle. I grew up with him. I kid you not. Um, he was alone a lot. And uh, so he talked to them. And what was the really scary part is sometimes they'd answer. Um, it was funny. You know, he'd go out of the house and he'd just call for He'd say, Sue cow, Sue cow. And all of a sudden they'd start showing up. I think they were looking for something to eat. But that's totally beside the point here. But here Amos is not doing that. Though he was a farmhand, though he was a herdsman, uh, I don't think he developed his habit of speaking to cows literally. Well, here we see is uh, he uses a feminine form for the word cow, and also that term later in verse 1, husbands, indicates that he is speaking to a group of women here, women who live in Samaria, the capital city of Israel. And I don't imagine this kind of sermon introduction would go over too well today, do you? I mean, imagine if I begin, as I begin our time this morning, let me just say, hey, you fat cows! That's not how a church might grow. But Amos here, he's, he's not resorted to name-calling. Actually, that term, that phrase would have a different meaning. They would have a different understanding of those in Amos's day of what he was talking about. Here he was describing not their physical features, but actually their financial condition. For Bashan was a very rich, fertile plain that was located about 40 miles east of the Sea of Galilee. It was a place where livestock, cattle, sheep, horses would be very well fed and taken care of because of the the lush agriculture there. And so here Amos, by calling them the cows of Bashan, what he was saying is you who are well taken care of, you who live in luxury, you who have no needs or no wants. And his issue here isn't so much that they are wealthy, 
That's not the problem. The issue is how they obtained that wealth. We talked about it last time in chapter 2 when Amos was addressing Israel directly. And he said one of the major indictments against Israel was the fact that they were neglecting the needy, that they were oppressing and exploiting the poor, that they were taking advantage of those who were helpless, that they were treating them unjustly. And so here Amos goes back to that because the luxury that these women were enjoying came upon the backs of those who were helpless and powerless. They were living high on the hog, or I guess on the cow in this case, because they were exploiting the needy. And though some of these women may not have been doing that directly, by demanding that their husbands go out and give them more, the way that their husbands would attain that wealth was through these unjust means. Because each gulp of wine that these women partook of, another judge would be bribed, another person would be forced into servitude, and another child would go hungry. And it's interesting, too, to note the word here for husband is actually the word adon, which is Lord. Um, Sometimes it was used for husbands in the Old Testament. But I think Amos is using it in an ironic fashion here because he's kind of developing this picture of these ladies ordering their lords around to go and serve them a drink. This description in verse 1 shows us one thing about sin. It shows us that sin is self-indulgent or self Debauch. These women were focusing solely on their pleasures. They wanted their appetites for pleasure to be filled no matter who it would hurt. And that really is, at the end of the day, that is the one thing that sin seeks to do in our lives. And that is to make me feel good, right? To give me what I want, to give me pleasure. Philippians 3.19, Paul describes those whose God was their appetite, literally their belly, he said. And this is where... It looks to me our whole culture is aimed. It's aimed at hedonism. It's aimed at seeking pleasure. In fact, that's life's chief purpose for many, I think. The God of America is physical happiness, isn't it? Food and sex, drugs, entertainment, clothing, recreation. These are what many people live for. Like the Sumerian women who don't care who gets hurt along the way. You know, it's amazing to me what a person will trade for pleasure. I've seen many give up even their own families. Traded them for the arms of another man or woman. Traded them for drugs or alcohol. Traded them for a career or a hobby. Traded them for money or fame, for a life of ease and comfort. And I've looked in the faces of those left behind. Some of you have experienced this in your own lives. Let us never underestimate the power of sin. Never. Never underestimate the power of self-indulgence and what it can do. And you know what the only protection is from this? It is to be more attracted to Jesus Christ. That's the only way. It is when Jesus becomes something you want more and you find more satisfaction in than anything else. We're going to talk about that more when we get to the next chapter. But the more time that you spend with Jesus, the more you will realize that He is the only source of real satisfaction. He becomes more desirable than anything. But these women of Samaria, they found their pleasure, they found pleasure as their God. That's what they wanted. And rather than care for the orphan or the widow or the poor, they would rather feed their fleshly desires, even 
causing the less fortunate to be the ones to do the feeding. And so in verses 2 and 3, God says, and he declares judgment upon them. Referring Here Amos refers to God as Adonai, or Lord. I think he's playing on with words here because, again, the term he used for husbands in the previous verse, it's like he's saying here that you've been ordering your lords around to serve you, but the Lord is going to be coming not to serve you, but to judge you. Details of that judgment are given in verse 2. They've given scholars a lot of difficulty in trying to figure out what does he mean here by hooks? Some have interpreted and translated it as baskets or pots that were carrying away uh, these women, a picture of exile. But I think hooks makes the most sense for a couple of reasons. One is, is the picture we see in the next line is that uh, they'll be marching out through the breaches of the wall in single file. So they're going to be walking as they go into exile. And the second thing is we know a little bit in the future that it's the nation of Assyria that's going to be taking them into exile, right? In about less than 40 years. The Assyrians were known for taking their captives away through a hook in the nose. Because when you do that, the person you're leading is going to go wherever you want them to go, right? That's the experience that King Manasseh had in Second Chronicles 33 as he was taken away by the hands of the Assyrians. And when we see here this picture of, of these people who are being led away through the breach of the wall in single file, it gives a picture of cattle being led away. Just as they had treated so many like animals, God says, now you will be treated like an animal. And ironically, the picture is those of cattle. These verses here should remind us of something, that the pursuit of pleasure, the path of self-indulgence is very costly. And God might bring very severe and painful corrections at times for that. So we'd be well to remember 2 Timothy 2.22, where Paul tells us, and he tells Timothy, he says, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, and love. And listen, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Very important and helpful instruction that Paul gives where he says not only to run from the sin and run towards righteousness, towards Christ, he also adds this phrase, with those who call on God, on the Lord from a pure heart. What's he saying there? In our path towards godliness, we have to be doing it together. He says, go towards righteousness with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The less accountability you have, brothers and sisters, the greater danger you are in. If no one knows what's going on in your life, if no one is asking you the questions, well, let me just say it's only a matter of time. So again, heed Paul's reminder. Have other believers in your life so that they know what is going on, not to accuse or judge you, but to come alongside you and you them. And as we move to verses 4 and 5, we see also that sin is not only only self-debauched, it's also self-deceiving. There's a shift here in what Amos has to say. He moves from uh, focusing attention on the women of Samaria and, and their sin to uh, calling the people to worship. He says here, enter, enter Bethel, enter Gilgal, and bring your sacrifices That word enter, or also translated as come, is a word that was often used to call people to worship. In Psalm 95, we see an example of it where the psalmist says, Oh, come, same word, let us sing to joy, sing for joy to the Lord. 
Or in verse 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Or in Psalm 100, Come before Him with joyful singing. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. This was a, a common term to invite those to come to worship the Lord. And Amos here calls them to Bethel and to Gilgal. And we'll talk more about those places in a future time. But Bethel was a very important place in Israel's history. Does anybody know what was important about Bethel? Really challenge your Hebrew studies here. You're close. Remember the dream that a certain individual had of a ladder going to heaven? Jacob. It was at this location. And after the dream, he had uh, placed a rock. that we, He had a, uh, used a rock as a pillow. And he, he made that as a, a demarcation for this place. And he called it the house of God or Bethel. Beth is house. El is short for God. Later, when Israel split into two nations, King Jeroboam made Bethel one of the religious centers in the northern, ten northern tribes of Israel. Gilgal was where Israel had first encamped in Canaan on the west side of the Jordan River before they came in to take the land. Samuel visited there annually, and even King Saul was um, anointed as king there. But in verse 4, as Amos calls the people to gather these locations to perform acts of worship, there's a twist, isn't there? Notice what he says. He says, come, and then he doesn't say come and bow down or come and worship or come and sing praise to the Lord. He says, come and... One person got it. (laughs) Come and transgress, right? Now, that's an odd statement for him to make. Is God inviting people here to come and sin? I mean, think if we had that on the marquee out in front next week. (laughs) Come to this church and sin, Gather together, enter in, so we can commit many iniquities. All are welcome. Yeah, that would be rather shocking. So for Amos to do this, he's obviously, uh, there's obviously a sarcastic tone here. And he's doing that to get their attention. Because let me remind you of the situation in Israel at that time. Things were going well. People were blessed, life was good. And the people were very religious people. Church attendance was not dropping. In fact, the people in those days were very faithful to worship. And at the end of verse 5, if you notice, Amos says the sacrifices, the tithes and the offerings were things that they loved to do. If you go over to Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 23, Amos describes how they were celebrating the festivals, how they were assembling together for worship. They had the choir singing, they had the band playing the praise songs. Amos chapter 8 verse 5 indicates that they were keeping the Sabbath and that they were also celebrating or or remembering the new moon festivals. Amos 8.10, we see them again celebrating the festivals and singing to God. These people were very religious. And so Amos says, bring your animal sacrifices, bring your tithes, bring your free will offerings, bring those, those volunteer offerings so we can pay for the missionaries and, and pay for the church projects. Bring it all with you. And then he describes all of that when he says, enter Bethel and transgress. And you know, what's interesting is that word transgression, have we seen that before in Amos? You remember chapter 1? That was the very same word that he used against the nations for their crimes against humanity. He called those transgressions. And here he uses that same word to describe the form of worship that was being offered by the people of Israel. Pretty indicting. 
He's saying here that while they were singing praises to God on the Sabbath, they were sinning against the helpless the rest of the week. And that's why Amos uses sarcasm here in order to make the statement that corruption and true religions cannot coexist. And I have to say, beloved, these verses scare me. They frighten me because they show us how self-deceiving sin can be. Because these people thought they were offering worship. They thought that God was happy with their religious activity. Why else would he have blessed them so richly? Why else would they be secure? Why else would their military be so strong? They thought you could live one way during the week and another way on Sunday. Or specifically Saturday in this case. They thought that God only cared that that they'd be faithful church attenders, that they'd be faithful givers, that they'd be faithful to sing praise to Him and go to Sunday school. But oh, how they were deceived. And what frightens me is how many today are like this. I mean, how many fill the pews of churches who are living in sin, but they think that they're okay with God. You know, this week I came across a reality show called Preachers of L.A. It tracks the ministries of six pastors here in Los Angeles. And please do not go watch this. Please don't. It's it's a disgrace. But in the episodes that I saw, one particular occasion, there was a conflict between one of these pastors and his girlfriend who were at the time living together. And the conflict was over the fact that she wanted him to marry her. So they were arguing about that. Other pastors in some of the episodes I saw were flaunting the wealth that they had obtained at the expense of those in their churches. It reminded me a lot of Amos's cows. And there was a lot, lot more. I, I don't even want to go there. But, but as I was watching this, some of these things that just showed me how self-deceiving sin is. That, that God's holiness matters so little. I guess, I guess God doesn't care if you're living together, not married. I, I, guess, I guess He doesn't care if you're committing adultery. I guess, I guess He doesn't care if all you want is money and a nice life. Or I guess He doesn't care if you yell at your spouse or abuse your children. Or if you're practicing homosexuality or if you use drugs. Or I guess He doesn't care about any sin that you're participating in as long as you're in the pew on Sunday. And if anyone here is in ongoing, unrepentant sin, and if you think God's okay with that because you're here this morning, friend, if that's what you think, your sin has deceived you. And and I'm worked up about this, not because I'm angry, but, but to warn you. To warn you. Confess your sin to Christ. Turn from it. And Jesus will free you from it. He will relieve the guilt and the burden that you bear because of it. And He will give you new life and transform you. So you won't want to go down that road again. And even as believers, we can get caught in the trap, can we not, at times, where we allow ongoing sin in our lives and then think that everything's okay? Especially if I'm involved and plugged in the church. But don't let your sin deceive you. Be repentant. Confess it. Get it out in the open. Deal with it. Get it over with so you can be right with God again. And that's why I think Paul says that we need to pursue righteousness with those who are who love God, who follow the Lord. Because they can help us in that process. God stands ready. His grace stands ready to help you in your need. But you need to admit that you need the grace. 
It's interesting to note here. If you look at verses 4 and 5, there's a glaring omission. Amos mentions the peace offering. He mentions the free will offering, the tithes he talks about. He mentions the thank offering. But notice there's one thing here that's missing. There's no sin offering. That's because they had no desire to turn from their sin. They were not sensitive to it. They had been so self-deceived by it that it didn't matter to them. That's why sin is so dangerous and we can never drop our guard. We must never think we've arrived. We must never think that sin is conquered in our life. We can't dismiss any sin as insignificant or unimportant. And I'm saying these things to, to focus on your sin and deal with it, not because... You're supposed to be guilty all the time. And, you know, Christians are never to have fun. They're not to smile. They're not to be happy. They're always to be discouraged and depressed and morose and somber. Right? No, that's not it at all. But we need to focus on our sin, not so that we feel guilt all the time, but so that we're on the alert all the time. It's our enemy. Remember, Peter said it wages war against us. Don't be like Cain. Remember, the Lord tried to warn him, didn't he? He said, be careful. Sin is... Crouching at the door, Cain didn't listen and he blew his family apart. Destroyed his own family. God does want us to enjoy the sweet pollen of life. He wants us to enjoy the the flowers of life, but he also wants us to be aware of the spiders that lurk there. Don't let sin steal your joy. And don't, don't let it grieve your Lord. Thomas Watson said, The sins of the wicked pierce Christ's side, but the sins of the godly wound his heart. Something we always need to remember. Well, let's turn our attention to verses 6 to 11, where we see that sin is not only self-debauched, not only is it self-deceiving, it is also self-determined. Sin is very stubborn. Verses 6 through 11, Amos lists here seven different actions that God took against Israel. Here, every action uh, God speaks, and he speaks in the first person singular, I, and then describes an action he took against Israel. He says in verse 6, I gave you clean teeth. In verse 7, I withheld the rain from you. In verse 9, I smote you with wind, mildew, and locusts. Verse 10, I sent a plague among you. I slew your young men. I made the stench of your camp rise. In verse 11, I overthrew you as Sodom and Gomorrah. These were seven different consequences that God brought upon them. And he brought it upon them to get their attention. He brought it upon them to move the people of Israel away from their sin and rebellion to realize they needed to turn back to God. These seven actions that he describes are all ones that he brought up in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. In fact, he promised, he said, I will bring these curses upon you if you turn away from me, if you rebel against me, if you break your covenant with me. Verse 6, he begins with an emphatic statement in Hebrew, but I, to form a contrast to what he has just said. This idea I think he's communicating is, your sin has lulled you into a false sense of security. You think everything is okay, but I myself, I myself cannot be accused of not trying to get your attention to warn you. And then he begins in verse 6, with the first action where he says, I gave you cleanness of teeth. Now, this was not some new uh, proactive dental program that he was implementing in Israel. 
But it was a figurative way to describe that there was no food to get their teeth dirty. It was a description of a famine. Notice here is with every consequence, God says, uh, I gave you past tense. This is something that he wasn't promising would happen in their future. He's saying, this is something, remember, that has happened in your past. It's hard to say which famine that uh, God is referring to here. Israel had suffered through several of them in their history. There was one in the time of Elisha, about 60 years prior to Amos, and then another in the days of Elijah, about 40 years before that. But the particular famine that God mentions here must have been pretty severe, for it says you lack, there was a lack of bread in all your places. Everywhere you lived, there was no food. In addition to famine, God then says in verses 7 and 8 that he also brought a severe drought, that he withheld rain. And again, there had been many droughts in Israel's history. Probably the most famous was in the days of Elijah when God withheld rain for it. Remember how long? It was three years. But in this particular drought, God says in verse 7 that he sent rain on one city, but not another. Kind of reminds us of the plagues of Egypt, right? Where uh, some plague, the plagues would occur in Egypt, but not on the people of Israel, even though they lived in the same land. Well, here he describes how he brought rain in some places and not others. To show this was not a random event or a, a natural event occurring, but that God was behind it. Because again, he wanted them to know he was doing it so that they, he would get their attention. Verse 8 indicates that this drought was so severe, the people staggered about from city to city in search of water. And then in verse 9, he gives the third consequence that God destroyed their crops with a scorching wind and with mildew, with crop disease and with locusts. If you have a New American Standard, it might say caterpillar there, but actually it's one of the eight terms used for locusts in the Old Testament. And any one of these would be devastating upon the land. He brought all three of them. Again, we can't be sure exactly when this happened, what event he's referring to, but if you remember back when we went through Joel, remember what event or uh, devastation was Joel describing that happened in Judah? Remember the locusts, right? The locust plague. And you remember from which direction Joel said those locusts came? It's from the north. Well, who was their neighbor to the north? The neighbor, Judah's neighbor to the north was Israel. Could have been that event that took place about 70 years before Amos. We can't be sure. But in any event, God describes how all their vegetation was destroyed at one time. Then in verse 10, he says a fourth consequence is that God brought a plague or a pestilence like what he had brought upon Egypt. The days of Moses, if we go back to Exodus 9, verse 3, it describes the plague of pestilence that came upon the livestock in Egypt. All of them fell victim to this fatal disease, the sheep, the cattle, the horses, the camels. God says here he brought a similar plague upon the people of Israel. And some scholars believe that plague may have spread among the people as well, like a bubonic plague. Then the next phrase in verse 10, God describes a fifth calamity that he sent. When he said, I slew your young men by the sword. There, that's a reference to war. That he brought war upon them. And again, the specific war isn't uh, detailed here, but there were several that happened in Israel's history. But that mention of the horses being captured and also slain may be a clue that it was the time not long before when King Hazael, about 40 years earlier from Iran, had come into the land of Israel and almost completely wiped it out. In fact, 2 Kings 13.7 describes the state of Israel's military following that battle. It says, 
For the king of Aram left to them not more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots. This is the entire nation of Israel. And, and 10,000 footmen. For he had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Pretty severe, pretty severe defeat. The sixth consequence that he mentions here in verse 10 seems to be related to that same uh, situation where he said, I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils. It's referring to a defeat that was so thorough that they suffered, they weren't able to get the bodies buried and out of the fields in time, and so the rotting corpses were smelling up the land. It's pretty graphic. Seventh action that God carried out is found in verse 11 where he says, I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Some say that this refers to the fact that God must have sent fire upon Israel at some point in time uh, like he did in Sodom and Gomorrah. Others say that uh, what he's doing here, he's just summarizing the previous six consequences and, and using this reference to Sodom and Gomorrah because that was a thorough destruction that God did upon the land. And so here through these six consequences that he brought have the same effect others say that it's a reference to that significant defeat at the hands of aram that i mentioned a moment ago it's hard to say but the point that he's making here that's clear is that they had experienced thorough judgment at the hands of god when you look back on these seven actions these are some pretty severe calamities that they went through aren't they They they're pretty significant events that took place in their history and the fact that Amos mentions seven of them here is no coincidence. Remember we talked about that. Seven was a number in the Old Testament that was often associated with what? The idea of completion, thoroughness, right? I think that's partly why he's mentioned seven specifically here. But also I think he's drawing them to what he said back in Leviticus 26 regarding if the people had turned away from God. Listen to what's repeated several times there. In verse 18 of Leviticus 26, God says, If after... All these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. He says in Leviticus twenty six twenty one. then, If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. And again in verse 23, If by these things you are not turned to me, I will strike you seven times for your sins. Again in verse 27, If in spite of this you do not obey me but act with hostility against me, then I will punish you seven times for your sins. I think Amos is reminding the people of when God said that. And again, God isn't saying, okay, I'm going to count to seven and then I'm done. That idea of seven just means there are going to be plenty of things I will bring in order to get your attention, to warn you, to bring you back. And Amos here was reminding them of the experiences that took place in their history and that these were not random occurrences. They weren't freaks of nature that took place without any, uh, without any, with just a whole randomness involved with them, but they were specific judgments from God for their rebellion. They were consequences that he brought because of their breaking of the vows to follow and worship him. They were actions that he took because of their sins against God and also against others. And if you look at these verses 6 through 11, how, how do they fit in chapter 4? Why is, why is God reminding them of these consequences? Was it just to, to let them know that he kept the word that he gave back in Leviticus 26? Well, I think God clearly indicates his purpose in these actions. And, and it's in a phrase that I skipped over. In fact, it's a phrase that's repeated five times here. Did any of you catch it? What does he say here? Five 
different times. Yet you've not returned to me. Yet you've not returned to me. That's the purpose. That word return is the Hebrew word shuv. It carries the idea of the action of repentance, turning away from sin and to God. And here in Amos 4, verses 6 through 11, he brought whatever was necessary in order that the people would see their sin and confess it and turn from it. He says again, I sent you famine, but you didn't turn to me. I sent you drought, but you didn't return to me. I, I sent you cry, I destroyed your crops, and you did not turn to me. I sent a plague, I brought devastation by war upon you, and you did not turn to me. I even brought destruction upon you like when I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And even then, you did not turn to me. Over and over, I tried to warn you, even to the point of bringing these great calamities. But God says, you refuse to repent. You refuse to turn to me. You refuse to give up your sin. This shows us another trait of sin and why it's so dangerous is that sin is self-determined. It is stubborn. It is like that spider. Once it locks on, it will not let go. And as I said earlier, many would rather have their pleasures, their independence, their control, their position, rather than God, like the people of Israel. And why is that? Why is sin so stubborn? Why is it so difficult to uproot? It's, it's intoxicating. It's addictive. It's enslaving. The sinner begins to think that it's something that he cannot do without, or it's something that he cannot let go of. All the while, it is something that will not let go of him or her. And again, I know God is addressing primarily unbelievers here in Amos chapter 4, but this characteristic of sin can be true for the believer as well. Because any sin that you or I give, continually give a place in our lives, becomes very difficult to uproot the longer we let it go on. It's like a virus or a weed that, that digs in deep and it's hard to uproot. And though believer, as believers we cannot be mastered by sin, there are times we can allow it to be master. Again, it amazes me to see what a person is willing to give up or lose in order to keep their sin. I'm dumbfounded at times what a person will go through and the consequences that they suffer and they still are latched on to that sin. I've experienced this in my own life. As Peter said, sin wages war against the soul and it is a powerful foe. And if you give any sin, any sin in your life of a place, then it will gain a foothold. And you know, it won't be content with just a small area of your heart. It will want more territory. It will continue to move and demand more. And the longer you let that sin go on, the tighter the claws dig in, the more difficult it is to get rid of. Because sin is self-determined. Sin is stubborn. Don't let it get a foothold. Well, lastly, let's look at verses 12 and 13 briefly. We'll see here that sin is also self-destructive. Proverbs 132 is a verse that's very important for us to remember, where it says, The waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. That's exactly what we see here in Amos. The people here had sought the whole world, and they were on the brink of losing their soul. 
God begins verse 12 with the word therefore. Again, he's going back to what he said. Therefore, meaning because you have spurned my warnings time after time after time, you've refused to repent. Therefore, I have something more for you, Israel. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to bring. God says there's one more thing. And I thought about that for a second. Think about this. Think of all the stuff they went through. Think of all the things that God had described that had taken place in their history. Things that even the folks he's speaking to had experienced, some of them perhaps, or at least heard from their parents or grandparents. They'd gone through all of that. They continued to spurn God and walk away from him. And God says, since you've responded in this way, there's one more thing I'm going to do. And I'm thinking, what could be worse? What could be worse? But these people so loved their sin, they were willing to face the worse because they weren't giving it up. And so God says in verse 12, Therefore, make yourself ready. Prepare yourself. And what are they to prepare themselves for? Prepare to meet your God. Now, some see this statement as a positive thing. That God was going to now meet them face to face, that He would be with them. And I read and heard many a good sermon from this phrase, how uh, they described how to meet God in worship or meeting God in glory or, or having a wonderful experience with God. And I admit, that phrase will preach. Prepare to meet your God. But in the context here, this was not something to be excited about. This was not something to be wanting to take place. It's kind of like when you hear the phrase, the police are coming. Right Now, that can have a very different meaning if you're the ones being robbed or the ones doing the robbing, right? Here God says, prepare to meet me. Prepare yourselves to meet me in judgment. Despite all the warnings that I had sent, you continue in sin, so now you're going to answer to me in person. That is scary. And God then reminds them in verse 13 of who they were going to meet, that he is their creator, that he knows all things, that he is the one who brings judgment, that he is the one who walks across the mountains as if they were anthills. He says, be ready to meet this God. And we see here that there does come a point, even for the patient and merciful and loving God, where he says, enough, enough. At the end of the day, This shows us, again, something even more dangerous about sin, and that is that sin destroys. Sin destroys. Destroys fellowship with a loving and holy God. It it destroys relationships with people, and if not dealt with, it destroys the soul in hell. And I fear there are some here this morning that may be on the same path as these Israelites. That you've not acknowledged or confessed to God that you're a sinner, that you have not embraced the forgiveness that Jesus offers through His death on the cross, that you've not expressed a desire to turn from your sin and to follow Jesus Christ. And, and I'm sure God has sent you many warnings in your life. I can think of several that I got. But you continue to ignore them. And like Israel, at some point, God's going to say enough. Prepare to meet me. And on the other side of death's door, when you do face him, there will be no Savior to stand in the gap to take the punishment for your sins in hell. There will be no one to accept that punishment because you did not accept him in this life. But today is the day that that future can change. 
Today is the day that you can be forgiven of those sins. That the words prepare to meet your God would be words of encouragement. would be words that you would want to hear. Today is the day that you can experience eternal life. Through the power of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sin and then rising again to show that He is the one God sent as Lord and Savior. So I appeal to you to, to turn from your sin. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Commit to Him for the rest of your life. The Bible says you'll be saved. For those of us who do believe in the Lord Jesus, I hope this passage in Amos has been a sober reminder of the danger of sin. For we are indeed released from enslavement to it, but that doesn't mean it's not still in our lives. Its influence has not yet been fully removed, right? Because sin, sin is out there, and sin is in here, Sin is in here for every one of us. So we must not entertain it. We must not trifle with it. We must not play with it. We must not ignore it. We must never underestimate it. Paul tells us in Romans 7, his own struggle with sin as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he described that struggle with it. And it shows us that sin still wields a powerful sting even for the believer. Just ask King David. Anger, bitterness, lust, gluttony, lying, greed, drunkenness, revenge, selfishness. These are not satisfied with just a small taste, just a a bite or two, just a small morsel. That's all I want. No, they always demand more. And it's not just the big sins that we need to watch out for. You know, a lot of times we talk about that in church, about sins. We think of the big ones. We think of those huge sins of Murder or adultery or bitterness, greed, drunkenness. But there are a host of others, those so-called little sins. I should put quotes, right? Impatience, envy, coarse speech, ingratitude, gossip, anxiety, broken promises, the desire to be exalted. These are sins that don't often make the headlines, but they are just as dangerous and they are just as grievous to the heart of God and they are just as harmful to others. So brothers and sisters, all of these sins are are capable of doing great damage. All of them are self-indulging. All of them are self-destructive. All of them are self-deceiving. All of them are self-determined. So we must flee them all. And I realized, you know, I counted. I used the word sin well over 100 times this morning. And that's kind of all we've been talking about, right? In fact, I think I used it 120 times. Sin, sin, sin. There's 123 times. Sin, 124. And I realize, you know, when we talk about sin, I realize that there may be ones that come to mind. I hope there are. That God's Spirit Maybe identifying things in your life. And and with that comes the guilt and feeling defeated. But let me encourage you not to let that guilt drive you to despair. But let it drive you to the cross. God has put within our conscience the signal of, of guilt in order that we would do something about it. In order that we would move towards the Lord Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle said this, Once let a person see his sin, and he must see his Savior. He feels stricken with a deadly disease, and nothing will satisfy him but the great physician. 
And we need to be reminded of the truth, the liberating truth that Jesus Christ can free you from sin. In fact, through his death on the cross, he has freed you. Romans 6, 14. Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Verse 18, he says, having been freed from sin. You became slaves of righteousness. If you're born again in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit has transformed your heart. And you have, by His power and grace, the ability to flee any sin in your life. You don't have to give in. Galatians 5.16, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Very simple, short statement. But oh, so powerful. Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You know what he's saying? You don't have to sin. By God's grace, not your power. He said, walk by the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit. He's the one that will empower you to be able to overcome that sin. Even as believers, there's still the presence of sin in our lives and we need God to keep working to move us away from it. Walk by the Spirit. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. But we must be wary of sin. And we must be vigilant to fight against it and to remember again that the fight is not ours alone to fight. We must remember, too, the power of the cross and what God can do through a truly repentant heart. Because, again, at the end of the day, that is all God is looking for. Do you know what He wanted the people of Israel to do? Was He wanting them to go and perform a bunch of good works so that they could make up for all the bad they did? Was He saying, hey, so you right now need to come up with all these social programs and fix all the people that you've sinned against, and then I'm okay. I mean, He would want that. But first, what he wanted to see was for them to simply say, we have sinned against you, God. Please forgive us and show us mercy. That's all he was looking for. Because God can take that heart and do something with it. And then do all of the caring for those who are in need and fix all the things they had broken. That's what David came to realize in Psalm 51. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So if you are feeling guilt, that's all God is expecting for you to do at this moment is to genuinely and truly ask forgiveness for your sin. Be restored to Him. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So I want to give you a moment just to, to pray on your own, to think about the things that we've looked at here in Amos. If there's sin that needs to be dealt with, and I know for every one of us there is, But if God, through His Spirit, has brought some things to your mind, I want to give you a moment to to talk with Him. And then I'll close this. Lord, it is so sobering for us to reflect on our sin, Lord. Lord, forgive us. God, I'm so encouraged by that song that declares my, my sin, my sin of oh, the bliss of this thought, my sin not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. It is well with my soul. And Lord, we are so thankful that 
God, you, you don't just burden us with the knowledge and reminder of the guilt of our sin, but that you give us a way out through the Lord Jesus Christ who will bear that sin and take it away. Lord, I pray if there are any here in this room, God, that have not sought to be right with you, have not asked you for forgiveness, who have never confessed their sin and genuinely desired to turn from it, that you would grant them repentance in this very moment, that they would look to Jesus Christ as their Savior. And Lord, for us, uh, as your children who Lord, still struggle in so many areas, we, we thank you for the encouraging reminder that you give the grace for us to be able to deal with each of those sins and that you give us your Spirit who works through your Word and through your people. God, I pray if there are any here that are in the midst of just ongoing sin who do name the name of Christ, that God, you would move them to get it out in the open, to confess it, to have a broken and contrite heart before you. So are we just we want to be a holy and blameless bride so that Jesus Christ would be lifted up and honored so that he would be pleased. And it's in his name we pray all of these things. Amen.